0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Uh, It's good to have people to say good morning to. And good morning to those of you that are tuning in. We're glad that you guys have joined us this morning. We're in week... 12 of a series called connecting the dots how the little stories of the bible tell god's big story that helps us understand our story and we've gotten to jesus and particularly this week to the teachings of um, jesus and what katie read was the beginning of the sermon on the mount which is like just hailed as the greatest teaching of um, jesus and and hailed by the greatest as the greatest teaching of jesus by folks that believe that jesus was the son of god and by folks that don't uh, and I've read this over the years, um, I, and I read a quote this week that's similar to ones that I've heard over over 25 years of teaching this. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the greatest treatise in mental health ever written. If we live by what's found in it, it will free us from the anger that sometimes accompanies mental health disorders and help us have a life of purpose and signifi- significance, balanced and simple. And so, this is just how people tend to to see the, te- the teachings of Jesus. I found a study this week put out by um, Ligonier Ministries that was really fascinating, actually. It's a, a theological survey of America. So they every couple of years they do this. They surveyed over 3,000 people um, you know, of all different religious beliefs and persuasions. And they have a, a sampling error, plus or minus 2%. So Weston, you can check this out. It was sassed up and, and statistically accurate. And they'll put out 35 statements to these folks and ask them, agree, somewhat agree, don't know, somewhat disagree, and disagree. And one of the statements was, um, Jesus was a great teacher, or a good teacher, but not God. And 52% of Americans uh, agreed with that statement, he was a good teacher, but not God. Now, presumably, a lot of the other 48% d- said, didn't agree with that because they think he's a great teacher and God. And it's just the point is that not many people are willing to come out and say that Jesus wasn't a great teacher because that's how people um, see Jesus. I break out Bobblehead Jesus every couple of years um, because I, I found this years ago, and it's like a great metaphor for the box our culture puts Jesus in. On the back, it talks about how different faiths perceive Jesus and says, although he's understood many different ways, everyone seems to agree that he was an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary man. And so that's where they put us. I, I don't think Biblehead Jesus is a great idea, so we'll just put him back down here. Um, but that's how we tend to perceive um, Jesus. And so I would assert that most people that think Jesus was a great teacher but not God have probably never really spent much time reading the teachings of Jesus. And it's not that he wasn't a great teacher, but um, I don't think you would think his teaching was that great if you didn't also think that he was God. And I think what has happened is that um, people end up in a safe place of thinking that he was a great teacher but not God. So I'll say something nice about him, but not what Um, He wanted to say, and I don't think that's where the teachings of of Jesus were really meant um, to lead us. Another statement in that Ligonier survey was, everyone sins a little, but people are good by nature, and 65% of of Americans agreed with that statement, and that's where it's taken us, is that we can think, well, Jesus is pretty great, and so are we, and (laughs) I don't think that's um, where it was meant for us to to go. I think it's meant to lead us to a place of worship, and and that's where I I want to take his teachings um, today, I found this uh, another uh, article, and it was about a, a literature professor at a major American university who assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her students as an essay uh, to read and respond to, and she was surprised to find out that a lot of her students had never read the Sermon on the Mount, and some of her students had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. So the responses that she got were not really the responses that she was expecting to get. The first one started, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. She's like, okay. the, The third one said, it's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago and then talked about Adam and Eve and dinosaurs. And so she just realized like this was pretty common. And she ends up writing there, it was not the loose jointed logic or the minimalist approach to spelling and punctuation that surprised me, which is great for a literature professor, you know. Um, although as a teacher, I might feel duty, prou- duty bound to probe their syllogisms, which I'll be honest, I, don't, I didn't know what a syllogism was. And so I looked it up, and I still don't know what a syllogism is. So if anybody wants to explain that to me, Leanne will probably text me now and circle their misspellings, the question that I was personally interested in was, why were these students A, so angry at what they had read, and B, so blithe in their dismissal of it? And so this is what she found, that the students were were angry about his teaching and dismissive of his teaching. And so why is that? Now... Before I read the rest of my notes from this essay, let me ask what comes to mind when I say a literature professor, a major American university, what just automatically comes to mind about where she was probably teaching? What part of the country would you guess she was teaching in? Northeast? Yeah, and maybe the Northwest. What? UNC. (laughs) UNC. Okay. Ah, excellent. Um, Texas A&M University, y'all. And how long ago do you think this happened? Are you sitting now? You are. 1987. I wasn't even in college then. So this has got to be like this on steroids now. She goes on with more of these essays. The stuff that churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. I do not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like it had to be perfect and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman, which I think was meant to be inhumane statement that I've ever heard. And the the professor writes, There's something exquisitely innocent about not realizing that you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. Uh, This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered after a two-millennia cultural haze. And at the end, she says, um, her conclusion is that the Bible remains offensive To honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. And for me, that somehow validates its significance. Uh, She finds it encouraging, and I don't disagree with her. I think that's probably the helpful way um, to to come at it. This is like where where I'm going to go with this Jesus' teachings paint a picture of the way the world should work that is, in many ways, just diametrically opposed to the world that we are creating and the world that we live in. And that even us in the church, that many of us Christians, are altogether too comfortable participating in and contributing to. And his teachings are meant to lead us to a depth of conviction that we're not letting them uh, take us to. And so I'm going to take just a few passages from the Sermon on the Mount, a few topics, and point out how radically um, they, they, they go from our culture today, a counter to our culture and where it's meant to lead us. And I'm going to start by talking about sex, and then I'm going to talk about how we treat each other, and then I'm going to talk about heaven and hell. So this is going to be fun. Um, So I'll start in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, I'll remind you of one of the statements of the students, the things asked in this sermon are absurd to look at a woman as adultery. That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard. These teachings run radically counter to our culture. You know, in a culture where 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce, these are not popular teachings. And I say that gently, knowing that, and I say this in my premarital classes all the time, good people get divorced, you know, marriage is hard. But this is a, this is a teaching that's counter to the, the spirit of our culture. Um, This is hard teaching uh, in an era where more money is spent every year on pornography than on all of the major sporting leagues put together. And I've read that statement multiple times, and it's not close. Um, 35% of all internet downloads are pornography. 40 million Americans regularly visit pornography sites, and this is the one that surprised me this week. 76% of women age 18 to 30 view pornography at least once a month which is just an increasing trend. And Jesus says, nope, (laughs) nope, can't do that. This is an unpopular teaching uh, in our culture. You can't go 15 minutes in our culture without viewing a sexualized image. You know, whether it be on a commercial or a TV show or the internet or a billboard, we use sex to sell everything. And uh, Jesus is saying, man, there's something drastically wrong here with, with what's happened and what we've done with it. I, um, I have read for years that the, the thing that did the most to change the sexual ethic in our country was the birth control pill, which came out in, in 1960, because what it did is allowed us to divorce sex from the consequences of sex, or to believe that we could divorce sex from consequences because you could have sex without having, um, without having a, a baby. And That is, I think, clearly what our culture teaches about sex today, that uh, there are no consequences to expressing or embracing like all of your sexual desires. And in fact, I think our culture teaches the opposite of that, which is the great consequences are for repressing, for not expressing or embracing all of your sexual desires. It teaches exactly the opposite because our identity is intersexuality And Jesus touch, teaches something different. I mean, he takes a step back from even the expression of your sexual desires to the affirmation and the cultivation of those desires within you that never get expressed outside of you and says those desires are going to do damage in the wrong context. And those desires need to be pruned and they need to be managed and you need to be careful about exploring and expanding those desires. Uh, when he says, whoever looks upon a woman with lustful intent, um, that, the language that he uses there is used, uh, surprisingly maybe, in, a, in another passage where he says to his disciples before he goes to the cross, I long to celebrate the Passover with you one last time. And so it's just this longing that he feels. And he's saying, when you have that longing for somebody other than your spouse, then you, that's not good for you, um, And I think that applies not just at men looking at women, but women looking at men, and women looking at women, and men looking at men, you know. Uh, He's saying stop objectifying each other for your own pleasure. Stop looking at each other as objects that you can use to satisfy yourself. Stop divorcing sex from the context of faithful relationship. And when you feed that desire for somebody other than your spouse, Jesus would call that sin. And so Jesus is teaching that there are consequences to uncheck sexual expression or even desire. No wonder college students didn't like the essay, right? Like, what a prude. Uh, and so let me, let me go through a few examples where I think our culture is learning this the very hard way uh, that he's right about this. And I'll start on campus with the concept of um, sex week. How many of you have heard of, like, colleges having sex week? So it's kind of surprising. no nobody uh, or a few of you. This started like 20 years ago, and I've just seen it over and over again. I don't know how many colleges do it, but the University of Tennessee does it, so it's kind of gotten into the heartland. It started at Yale 20 years ago, which Yale, I think, is the college that's produced more presidents and Supreme Court justices than any other college in America, which makes me find this even even more concerning. Um, And so... I'll get, uh, what I ended up getting this information from was something called the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, which is a bipartisan sectarian. It's a, it's a, interfa- a diff- bunch of different religions and non-religious people just wanting to end sexual exploitation. And they said Sex Week is a series of events held on many college campuses around the nation that allegedly serve as sexual education, but in reality often promote sexual exploitation. They go on to document how common sexual abuse and assault is on the college campus, which we hear about a lot. Then they say, however, by promoting or facilitating sex week events, many college officials are actually fostering sexually exploitative exploitive biases on their campuses. Sex week events around the country chronically promote prostitution as sex work and pornography as healthy sexual activity. And and then go on to say, at Yale, where it was first initiated, there were two reported rape cases during sex week. The assaults were reported by students who had attended um, an annual party where people dressed up in bondage costumes and violent pornography was projected. So, this is, you just can't have unchecked sexual expression without having consequences and then be surprised that that's what happened. Um, another thing that I've caught on to in recent months and years, there's a, a lady that a pastor had retweeted. And so I just started following her because I found this fascinating. Her name is Layla M- Micklewaite, and she this is a couple years ago. She's trying to shut down Pornhub, which I think is one of the biggest porn sites like out there. And like single-handedly, she's trying to do this. And so what she did was talked about how many um, people have videos of them that were placed by someone else on the site or images, and they can't get Pornhub, they won't take them off. Uh, or how many minors are on there, and how many searches are done for, for underage um, people? And just over years, she kept, you know, beating this drum and getting small protests about it. Finally, a few months ago, she got an edit, an editor, an editorial in the New York Times written, I think, by David Brooks, about all the things that she had been saying were happening on Pornhub. And so he put them out there in the New York Times. And the next week, Visa, Mastercard, and PayPal all said we're no longer going to process payments for the site, and then the site had 13 million videos on it. They took down 10 million videos all at once <laughs> as like an acknowledgement of like, yeah, all that stuff's on <laughs> And now it's, they, they practic- see, practically has shut it down, but it's just an example of you can't have unchecked sexual desire expression without there being consequences to that. The effects of pornography on the family have been documented. The percentage of divorces that involve pornography or affairs that begin online the effect of pornography on sex and marriage, um, the rise in sexless marriages because the expectations are fueled by pornography, what it's doing to our teens, how we're training ourselves to be unfaithful by fantasizing about sex with whoever we want to instead of training ourselves to be faithful to the one we've committed to love. You just can't, you can't do that without consequences. Uh, there was an article in a little bit different vein by um, a reporter in a British newspaper, The Guardian. And something happened there within the last few months. Uh, There was a woman in England that was abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered, and it turned out by a police officer. And so it became like a touch point for the nation, apparently. Um, Kate Middleton has gone to visit her memorial personally, which she doesn't do, you know, but it's like this just kind of rising up of the issue. And uh, this, this, editorialist wrote just about an experience she had in the midst of all this stuff going on where she was taking her kid or she was walking to her kid's school at like five o'clock on a Thursday afternoon down a, a not obscure London street and um and she had a guy walking towards her giving her a creepy stare and she just looked straight ahead and he got past her and then he turned around and was like what are you looking at when she wasn't looking at anything and then just started harassing her and calling her um you know things you can't say in church and or anywhere and um and they got up beside her and then they got to a cross street and she tried to get people's attention by saying, stay away from me and they looked up but they didn't do anything about it. And she, so she wrote about the experience and turned it into her editor that asked if she was okay. And she said, I'm absolutely and completely fine. I said to my editor when I told him what I'd write about um, instead of what she was planning on, really it's just don't say part of life, don't say part of life, it's just part of life. I told him the truth that I genuinely forget about these things soon after they happen. But please, I said to him, please tell me if it comes out wrong. I never say that with any other column, but of course we ladies worry about telling our our own stories wrongly or unsuccessfully. And I bring that up, like I have no idea what that's like, but I bet all the women in in the room know exactly what that's like because you can't just advocate for unchecked sexual expression or desire without having this type of consequences. Um, There is a consequence of... Millions of babies that aren't here uh, over the last forty-five years because you can't have unchecked sexual expression without consequence. And I and I don't. I try and say that gently, knowing that's a tough issue for, for many of, of us. You know, but it's but it's true. Uh, this is what Jesus is saying. There's consequences, and our culture over and over is ga- is saying no, there aren't. And I don't want to come across in in a moralistic tone. I've tried to, like, gauge this all week long because I want to come across in a tone that says, this is the son of God who invented sex, and he is smarter than we are about this stuff. And when he says there's consequences, we should believe that there are consequences. And in fact, he says the consequences are so severe that you should be willing to gouge your eye out or cut your hand off instead of risking those consequences, Now, does 52% of our culture really believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not the Son of God? I don't think so. Like, if they do, we're not acting like it. Is Jesus against sexual expression? Absolutely not. Uh, You know, later in some of his teachings, he's going to recount Genesis saying... um, you know god saying a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and that's jesus saying have sex and it's the same context of god saying be fruitful multiply and fill the whole earth with babies which is jesus saying go ahead and have lots of sex he's for it but faithfulness is what's advocated and faithfulness is difficult um He's advocating for not surface-level, ego-satisfying, cheap sex, but faithful sex that requires intimacy because you've worked through tough issues because you're broken people and you need the gospel. That's what he's advocating for. I, um, I listened to a few weeks ago an interview with a, a guy named Jordan Peterson, who's a somewhat controversial figure, I guess. And what's been most interesting about listening to him now and then over the past few years is he did a series on the, the Bible and trying to figure out what he actually believes. And this interview he did a few weeks ago was with an Orthodox, like an Eastern Orthodox believer, a French-Canadian guy named Jonathan something French-sounding. And um, and their conversation is fascinating because Jordan Peterson is like, I've never, I've never listened to a, a public figure like him wrestle so honestly and openly with who he thinks Jesus is. Because he's like, I've gotten to the point where I find... The idea that Jesus is divine, like he says, the it's where the objective touches the narrative. <laughs> it's like Lewis saying, myth has become reality. And he said, I find it oddly plausible, and like I can't believe that I believe it, and the consequences of it are terrifying. Like he's really, like it's a great interview. I'll post it at some point, because it's just a great, t- it's touching to listen to someone wrestle with it like that. But at the end of the interview, virginity is about faithfulness, and even like if you didn't come into marriage as a virgin, you're you're Virginous within marriage because you're faithful to the person that you're married to. And, um, and how that's about faithfulness to another person. And my mind just like instantly was like, the only person that will really encourage yourself, um, that's, that's the problem. And that's tearing us apart. And Jesus is teaching to deny ourselves and be faithful to God only. And that's a problem for us. But that's where his teaching leads us. Okay, let me talk about how we treat each other. And these, these next two will go, they'll go progressively quicker. Um, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors... Do the same, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There was another um, article when I was when I was trying to find the first one. I found this other one in this British newspaper that's titled "We're told to love thy neighbor, but what if they are awful?" And I'm like, this is perfect. This is someone that's heard a few teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor, but somehow missed the part where Jesus says, and love your enemies too. Because like, Jesus wasn't saying, oh man, I didn't know how hard it would be to love your enemies. I didn't know they were that bad. Just don't worry about that one, you know? (laughs) Like just selectively picking it. And Um, This is funny because it's British. She talks about getting new neighbors, and her husband says, maybe we should go and introduce ourselves. No, I hiss, we're not American. (laughs) So that's what they think about us, which is pretty great. But she's talking about living in London and living on top of each other with COVID. She says, we live in an age and a country of high-density living, more intimately acquainted than we would like with next-door's habits at the best of times, and this past year has definitely not been the best of times. So we are fully appreciating for the first time the thinness of our walls or the depth of our neighbor's commitment to vacuuming or karaoke, (laughs) to do-it-yourself or Joe Wicks. I don't know who that is. Successive lockdowns has pushed previously cordial relationships to the breaking point. And I mean, I think she's got a point there. You know what I mean? People can bug you and the people you live with and around are the people that tend to bug you the most. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. Yeah. and, and so that's just what she ends, it gets it really funny at the end because she says, so far our new neighbors have been perfectly silent. Over the past week, I have, however, clocked with mounting unease my son's 6.30 a.m. departure for school with a bone-shaking door slam and the fact that our confused elderly dog spends a good portion of most days barking at nothing. I've noted how loudly our robot Hoover lurches around bumping into things like a messy drunk and realized the high notes I have no business attempting during online choir practice resonate horribly. We've even set off the fire alarm twice. Are we, in fact, the bad neighbors? (laughs) It was great. Like, just a great, honest article. Um, But do we really have to love the people that we don't like? Like, really love them? This made me think about how my if I had to come up with a top 10 list of movies, five of them probably never would have been made if we really loved our enemies the way that we're supposed to love our enemies. Like, we wouldn't know who Liam Neeson was if we really followed this teaching, except for Schindler's List, which is a great Love Your Enemies movie. But pro- most of you probably haven't seen that. How many of you have seen Schindler's List? Oh, good. How many of you have seen all the Taken movies? right. And uh, and so if if we live this out, then all our movies would be like Schindler's List or Remember the Titans, you know. But there's something in me that would rather watch Taken one, two, three, how many ever there are, or Man on Fire or the Jason Bourne movies than Remember the Titans, and like it's not close if I'm honest with myself because the two types of movies take me to two different places in my soul, and I would rather go to the place where I'm right. I'm justified, my enemy is beyond redemption, then to the place where we work through our issues and we achieve intimacy because we both admit that we're screwed up um, and we can be screwed up together. And that's what those movies do. Like those taken movies, they they paint out your enemy as beyond redemption. They let you express the full fury of your righteous anger. They leave you in control of vengeance instead of putting you in a place where you have to trust that God is the one that's going to make things right. They put you in a place, in short, where you get to play God. And you don't have to love your enemies because you're too busy killing them. Uh, and I don't, I don't like how much I like those movies. Um, we don't really think this is great teaching. My kids uh, right now are watching The Walking Dead which is about zombies, I've never understood our culture's fascination with zombies. And I read an article a year or two ago, and I looked it back up again this week about how zombie movies became popular in the 40s and then in the late 60s, early 70s. So they became popular when we were fighting the Japanese and the Germans and were really angry about it, and then again during the civil rights movement in Vietnam, where again, we're really angry and need an outlet for it. And so we came up with stories about faceless, nameless enemies that we could just stab in the head and be okay with it. And, and that's, and I think, a fair explanation of the popularity of um, zombie movies. We are, we're experts at making up an other that we don't know much about so we can feel better about ourselves. I mean, this week it was, I'll admit to me out of nowhere, like an anti-Asian fervor that is around that is now really popular. I just don't, I'm going to spend some time on it because I, I haven't noticed it before, you know. But I have noticed, like, we do this with every, with every group of immigrants that comes through our country. We demonize them for a while. We used to not like Italian people, and we're like, what? When I was a kid, we made Polish jokes. I didn't even know any Polish people, but that, we just did it, and every group gets that. And then after a few generations, we're like, ah, they're not going anywhere. I guess we can like them now, and we'll be mad at somebody else, because that's just what we do. We other somebody. The, the church does it. Honestly, we can do it as well as anybody. One of the teachings this week um, in the readings was the Good Samaritan, and so that's the story where the man gets beaten and left for dead um, on the path from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the priest and the Levite, the religious people, pass by, and the Samaritan is the one that stops and help them, helps helps him out. And so Jesus, what caught me this week is he's saying the theologically inaccurate one is the one whom you should model your behavior after, and that really bothers me, you know. Uh, but we can do this. Um, we, we other people. And um, I think that's why Jesus is, is like a hard teacher for our culture. He's not a good teacher because, in essence, he says, Hey, you're the other. You're the one that can't get your act together. And we don't like hearing that. There are a couple terms we, we use a lot lately in our culture um, virtue signaling is a term we use a lot, and cancel culture is one we use a lot. And I think the Sermon on the Mount speaks to both of those. Jesus, At one point says, "Hey, when you pray and when you give and when you fast, don't let anybody know about it." And when we, I mean, this is just common in our culture. When we do anything good, we put it on social media, which is virtue signaling. He says, "Stop doing that." And we can't cancel people. And you know, you read this part of the Sermon on the Mount in light of the election cycle that we just went through, and ask yourself: Did you other somebody? Did you other whoever was on the other side from you? Um, Did you demonize them? And just write them off. Uh, Did you love them? Did you ever pray for them? Did you try and have a conversation with them? In light of the racial tension that we're experiencing in our culture and the lines that are being drawn, the ease given social media with which we can demonize someone without ever having trying to talk to them. And right in this passage, he says, God doesn't even cancel people. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Uh, this is tough teaching. We're not good at loving our enemies, and I don't think that we think we should really have to bother with it generally. But he does. Um, the last one I'll, I'll touch on is um, heaven and hell. And I'll do this quickly. He just talks about it so much. We live in a right-now, get-it-all-right-now world, and Jesus pushes a lot of stuff out to eternity uh, I'm a big NFL fan today. This week was the beginning of the NFL year, so free agency was a big thing. And all these teams have a salary cap, and so the talk is about how teams manage their salary cap. And a lot of teams just live for right now, and they push all this stuff out into the future, and they end up in salary cap jail, they put it, um, because they just haven't planned for the future well. I think Jesus would have managed the salary cap really well because he's, he is constantly pushing stuff out. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We tend to think we can't know much about then, but then. So we should get what we can now. Um, and Jesus is saying the things that you are after now that you think are so great really aren't so great. And the things that you don't think are so great then are a lot greater than you think they are. And Jesus is saying then is a lot longer than now, and you should trust me on this. But that's just not how we live. And he says, it, he says it throughout the sermon, your reward is great in heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. Your whole body will be thrown into hell. Your father who sees in secret will reward you over and over again. But we live generally as if this is it and there's nothing beyond it or nothing that we can know much about while there are no limits to the experience that we can create for ourselves here, and Jesus is teaching us to live in a really different way in light of what he says is true about eternity. And that requires a really deep level of faith because it's always going to cost you something now to live for eternity. It's not, He doesn't. It's, you're going to be blessed now, but like it's going to cost you some things that look good to you and you want now in order to live in light of eternity. Jesus is teaching a radically different vision of what life is meant to be than what we're advocating and living out today. He is teaching, and he puts it this way, it's just a different kingdom. God's kingdom is a different kingdom than the kingdom that we're, we're creating and will naturally create apart from the gospel and the work of God in our lives. And he's teaching an ethic that is impossible for any human being to live out. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's probably what's really hard for us. And so what do we do with that? Where does that teaching lead us? And so I'm going to go back right to the beginning of the teaching and what Katie read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down, and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught him, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who's in the kingdom of heaven is the poor spirit. And all that teaching leads you to a place of being poor in spirit. And if it doesn't, you haven't heard it correctly. Like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to think you're not all that. Um, and when you think, I can't, I can't do all that, that leads you to a place of poor in spirit and knowing your need for God. When you think, this isn't all about me. <laughs> like, it's not about living for myself and my needs and my wants, um, for being faithful to me. It's about being faithful to him. And trusting him and that leads you to a place where you're poor in spirit jesus doesn't want us to feel like badly about ourselves i mean you're made in the image of god uh, and jesus is go- he went to the cross for us because we are so loved by god and so we don't it's not about feeling badly about yourself um, c.s lewis once said being humble isn't thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less um, but I do think he wants us to be realistic about our issues, because we got issues, and to stop quite try, constantly trying to justify ourselves, and instead surrender to him and realize the depth of our need for God. I mean, I threw that line in: "You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." And man, the, that's it. The bar can't get any higher. I thought about uh, John taught earlier in the series, and at the end of his teaching, he had a. Like a graph that talked about when we come to Christ, we realize God's holiness and our sinfulness. And as we grow in Christ, it's not thinking, oh, I'm a little better than I thought I was. It's like God is better than I ever realized. And I've got more problems than I knew about. And in the gap of that isn't feel bad about yourself, but it's feel good about the grace of God towards you. And stop thinking so much about yourself. Um, there's a quote from Lloyd Jones where he said, to be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we realize there's nothing worth defending. And I thought at the end of this that maybe a test of this and how much we're trying to justify ourselves is asking, if you, could, if you could really be what Jesus says you were made to be in this sermon, would you? Like, is that a longing for you? Or do we long more to justify ourselves as we are? Do we long more to justify ourselves as we are or to become what he says we were created to be. If you could genuinely, you know, love your enemies and like watching movies like Remember the Titans more than Liam Neeson movies, would you? Uh, If you could genuinely stop looking at or thinking about or reading about people other than your spouse with longing, would you? If you could genuinely be generous with the things that God gives you, would you? If you could genuinely trust him about eternity and live in light of eternity more than you live for now, would you? Because that's, that's what heaven's going to be like. And he's, that's, that's good news, is that he can turn you into that, and he will turn you into that. And that's his goal. The offer of the gospel is not read Jesus' teaching and justify yourself by it and try really hard. The offer of the gospel is, I can make you that. I can make you that. From Hebrews, by a single sacrifice, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're justified in what he's done for us, but we're being sanctified. We're being transformed into what he created us to be. And the most important message about the Sermon on the Mount isn't what you should or shouldn't do or can or can't do, but about who Jesus is. And so you read this sermon, you know, and I read a couple passages that do this where Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and that's huge language. (laughs) Huge language, because a prophet would say, hey, thus says the Lord, and I'm just giving you what the Lord said. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I'm saying to you, it's a gigantic statement. And they said at the end, he teaches as one with authority, because they realized he wasn't just claiming to be a good teacher, but claiming to be God. He says, when you suffer for my name's sake, you'll be blessed. That's not something a great teacher just says to you. He declares to them, who will and will not be rewarded, Um, in eternity. Like, there's an authority that comes with that. Uh, And there's one passage where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is something a good good teacher doesn't doesn't say, just doesn't say. If I stood up here and said, hey, listen, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You'd be like, I think we knew that, Jeff. Like, I don't think we needed to hear that from you today. (laughs) It's something different. He is declaring his divinity in the sermon, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, and I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And that's, you know, a, I heard this stuff a lot when I was a teenager, that it's about, um, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, which honestly I I found a little bit trite. Um, But this is exactly it. Like, I never knew you. Jesus at one point says, this is eternal life, that they might know you and the one whom you have sent. It's relationship with him. And relationship requires that you come to him honest, and you come to him humble, and you come to him seeking uh, his mercy. And you don't know him by ignoring him and pretending he doesn't exist, and it's too hard to grasp. When he came from heaven to earth to show you exactly what his life what he's like Um, you don't know him by spending this life ignoring him and um and thinking like that's enough you don't know him by ignoring your sin and pretending to be someone you're not and justifying yourself and rejecting the grace that he's offered you you know him by surrendering yourself to him and believing in him and following him and i'm going to finish with a, a quote and um Megan and Katie and John can come back up and it's from a just a little teaching that's probably 100 years old now about the Sermon on the Mount and um this guy ends it like this he says what will you do with Jesus will you treat him with a mild approval ah uh, people are so patronizing in the presence of Jesus today they say such kind polite things about him they're good enough to say that his ethics will solve the problems of society they are good enough to say that he enunciated some maxims that are better than Jefferson's ten rules and go far beyond Socrates and Confucius and Buddha, Buddha, Buda. They are perfectly ready to let him influence some departments of their life. They will not receive him as their savior. They are not interested in his atoning blood, but they are so complacent in his presence. God grant that it may not be so with you, my friends. God grant that you may never treat Jesus with this polite patronizing approval. God grant that you may not treat him as a religious genius or the founder of one of the world's religions. God grant that instead you may say to Jesus with doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. Father, I pray that we would be able to to read your teachings and see your teachings um, without the The filter that we put it through in our culture without feeling the need just to say you're a great teacher, but to read it as you meant it to be said, that we would realize um, that you are teaching it not from the perspective of a great human teacher, but from God in the flesh. Lord, that it would lead us to places of renewed conviction, that even those of us that have been walking with you for years and years and years would be convicted of places in our life where we've settled. And that wouldn't lead us to scramble to justify ourselves or to, to write off your teaching somehow, but just to lean um, even more into you and, and to seek the power of your spirit in our lives and to be at work with you um, as, as you work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Lord, that we would be a part of the work that you're doing in us. And God, I pray for anybody today that, They're caught in this trap of just thinking that Jesus is a great teacher without thinking that you are divine. I pray that your spirit would speak to them, God, and this would be their day of surrender, that he is more than just a great human teacher, a good guy, a great man, but he is the Lord. He is where the objective touched the narrative. He is where heaven touched earth to lead us to you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.